Good morning again, everyone. It's great to see each of you and to have a chance, privilege to worship with you. Um, You may have noticed that in the uh, back of your bulletin is a study guide um, for this rather lengthy study of the books of or the two letters of, uh, to Corinth. And each of these, uh, this is for your own personal study, however you want to use it. And you notice each of them are titled with a word that begins with C. How clever. I'm not sure how helpful that's going to be to you, but I liked it. And I was proud of myself that I was able to do that. Um, however, uh, this morning, uh, co-workers seem to be uh, to less and less fit the passage as I studied it. Um, and this was made uh, month, a month or so ago. Um, Paul now is continuing to talk about division in the church or contentiousness. So see what I did there? Contentiousness. And we're going to address that. But I wanted to let you know that the C is a little bit different than what the title of the sermon conveys, uh, at least as it's printed in your bulletin. And also, I wanted to read the latter part of that chapter that Jessica read just to give us a little bit more Context. So she read up till verse 15. This is 16 and following. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools So that you may become wise for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight as it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. In a bizarre but long-cherished tradition, two Orthodox churches in Greece, in the town of Redondos, fire rockets at each other's churches while services are held. The objective is to hit the other church's bell. To ring the bell of the other church, but many rockets, as you might expect, go astray and they miss and they go into the neighbor's homes and their windows and into parks and so forth. And it causes locals to frantically run for cover. According to the BBC, gangs from the two rival parishes spend months preparing more than 25,000 rockets. One rocket maker says a good rocket has to fly fast and go far and stay lit until the end. Several several days before the event, residents carefully board up both churches' windows and doors and wrap wire sheeting around the buildings to protect worshipers. On Easter Sunday evening, Easter Sunday Residents are, as mass is said in both churches, the rival parish gangs set to work lighting fireworks and aiming them at each other's church. Amid the melee, priests in both churches attempt to continue with mass, although the deafening sounds of fireworks and cheers as the rockets hit their targets often drown out the proceedings entirely. 
Residents also admit that it's not the most safety conscious of ceremonies. With several fires in recent years sparked by rockets and even a few deaths, one local lamented, we live as hostages to this tradition. Wow, there's a sermon in there. We can't breathe when it takes place. We have to be on standby in case a fire breaks out, because if you're not careful, you can lose your home. Well, I'm going to assume that probably none of us here have been in a church rivalry of that magnitude where you're, it's escalated to firing rockets at other human beings. If you have, please let me know because I would love to take you to lunch and hear the story because your life is more interesting than mine. But joking aside, for just a moment at least... I've been witness to, and I've been victim of, and some of you too, such hostility within the church that you wish you could see the rockets physically coming at you. You wish it was only something like that instead of the verbal and emotional and spiritual assaults that are being fired your way. Some of the greatest wounds, some of the greatest hurts probably Most, if not all of them, come from those that we are closest to. And being in a church far from offering protection, sadly, almost ensures that it will happen. Some of the most cantankerous, some of the most visceral debates take place between people whose theology is the most similar to one another. Charges of heresy are thrown about. And division takes place most often between people whose position on the theological spectrum is almost indistinguishable to everyone else. We as humans are prone to division, factionalism, rivalry, as are the residents of this Greek island, as were the Corinthians. And not only is it draining and is it depleting, but it completely undermines the mission of the church. And perhaps that's why you're sitting here this morning and not yet willing to call yourself a Christian. Or maybe it's why you're only now venturing back after a long absence from church because you've seen these internecine warfare take place in the church. Well, we see it, we acknowledge it, and we are sorry for it. Paul sees it, and he goes on the offensive, and he he really lays into them in this passage. And we're going to look at just three things. What is the cause of this division or factionalism, the leaders in the context of division, and then the end to division? How do we get outside of it? So first of all, the cause of division or how the church divides itself. He points to the immaturity of the Corinthians. He says that they're infants, and it's not a commendation like Jesus uses it to say that you must become like this child to receive salvation. No, what Paul is saying is that you guys are acting like a bunch of babies. Knock it off. He says that you have jealousy and quarreling in your church. And they show that you're thinking in a merely human way, nothing distinctly Christian about their way of vetting or listening to or following leaders. You're picking sides, and it's tearing the church apart. So knock it off. Now, it's interesting how Paul approaches this rhetorically. It's almost funny to listen in 
And you are thankful that you're not getting this letter from Paul because he gets a little bit snarky with them. And the context, putting it together from both of these letters, is that Paul has apparently been reproached by the Corinthian church. They have written him and said, Paul, your teaching is not elevated enough. Or to put it another way, it's not deep enough. And let me tell you, every minister, no matter how eloquent, no matter how smart, no matter how good of a preacher, no matter how erudite, no matter how committed to discipleship they are, has heard that numerous times in their career. Pastor, we're going down the street to this other church because we're not getting fed here. We need meat rather than spiritual milk. Well, don't ever say that to Paul. Because what does he say? I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as mere infants. Can you imagine saying that to a pastor? We're going down the street to this other church because we're not being fed here. Well, that's because you're a spiritual infant. (laughs) Their assumption is that spiritual progress can be pinpointed and graded so precisely that a different set of curricula is is necessary for each class in the church. And guess where the Corinthians grade themselves? What class are they in? (laughs) They're in 401. They're looking down at everybody else. And Paul turns the tables on them. And he places them not in the 401 class, but in the remedial 101 class. They haven't even made it to college yet. They've got to do some remedial stuff to get into college. You're impressed, Corinthians, that you can use these big words and hold debates and You've aligned yourself, you've hitched your wagon to the latest spiritual guru. But when I look at you, I see that there's jealousy and quarreling in your church. So all of that is meaningless. All of their theological sophistication is meaningless because there is fractionalism and division and jealousy and quarreling in their church. Now, let me say this. Paul is in no way demeaning theological thinking, sophistication, learning, insight, understanding. Quite the contrary. Some of the most important discussions are happening in this church. Incredible theological significance. How do we attain wisdom? What are the norms of sexuality to be observed in marriage? What is the nature of idolatry? What is the meaning of the resurrection? The stakes couldn't be higher, theologically speaking. And in fact, Paul is making a theological argument throughout this letter. So it's not theological insight that he is demeaning. What he is saying, being an infant, being of the flesh, does not mean lacking in refined spiritual knowledge. That's what the Corinthians thought. Nor does it mean, because he talks about flesh, that he's addressing a sexual sin or sins of the body, as is often thought. Being of the flesh in this context means living in rivalry and jealousy and having disunity in the church. That's what being an infant, that's what being of the flesh means in this context. Paul is not impressed with their theological learning. And if any church's common life, if in-town's common life exhibits factionalism and jealousy, we're not mature, even if we can spell infralapsarianism. In other words, there can be a huge 
disconnect and distance between your level of theological sophistication, what you understand, what you can explain, what you've memorized, what you can debate, and your actual spiritual maturity. There are churches, there are denominations that have a history of deep theological exploration but continue to divide into smaller and smaller and less significant tribes dividing over less and less important things. And we should ask, does my theology lead to division and strife and defensiveness or does it lead to peace and cooperation and unity in the church? To the Corinthians, he's saying, wake up. Stop fighting. Stop acting like spoiled babies. So first the cause of division, but then leaders in the context of division. Because what the Corinthian church was doing was they were looking to their leaders as sort of spiritual gurus. And they were aligning themselves with one particular person over and against someone else. Instead of servants of God. Verse 5. Human thinking, human wisdom says follow the cult of celebrity. Follow the smartest, the most eloquent, the most well-dressed, the best speaker. The one who makes the biggest impression has the biggest following. Because we want to be part of something significant. And if something is flashy, if something is moving, if something seems impressive, we want to hitch our wagon to it. We want to be a part of it. But often... This says more about our insecurities than it represents anything intrinsically valuable in that person that we are linking our wagon to. Did you get that? This often says more about our personal insecurities than it does about something that's intrinsically valuable in the person that we're following. Richard Lovelace, who is a professor and has spent his life writing about spirituality, says this. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves them and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements. You see, theology, that is the very centerpiece, one of them, of the gospel. Theology is important. Those who don't understand how their acceptedness in Jesus apart from their spiritual achievements. These people are subconscious, subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins that they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness that they are supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, in a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. Hear this. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches of the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. What the Corinthians are doing are they, are they are picking their favorite leader, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, who is another, what is another name for Peter, and dividing into factions over them. 
And others are saying, well, I don't follow them, I follow Jesus, which is like the ultimate trump card, right? I don't follow any of them, those people like you do. I follow Jesus. These were the non-denominational people of the day, that we don't hitch our wagon to one denomination or follow a creed or a tradition. We just follow Jesus, perhaps failing to recognize that that is a creed, that is a tradition, that is a form of denominationalism. What these people were doing is trading human wisdom for the wisdom of God. And Paul introduces here in verses 5 through 9 an agricultural metaphor. And here's what we learn from it. That God is the owner of the field. And that the people of God, the church, belong to him. And that God alone is responsible for the growth, and the, uh, the growth of that field, of the church. That leaders are merely servants. Though they they labor differently, some plant, some water, they have a unified purpose that is caring for and nurturing the church towards its mission. They create environments, they build relationships in which the church can grow, but God is is the one that is responsible for the growth. And what this church had done is they had confused, they were dividing because they had confused the means of growth with the source of growth. They were dividing by confusing the means of growth with the source of growth. They were creating factions around those who were merely servants. If you only knew what Paul and Apollos really are, it's preposterous that you would worship them. It's not that they're terrible, no good people, far from it. And it's not even that it's idolatrous, though it is. It's simply that you don't understand how things work. This is like falling in love with a certain brewery because of the kind of trucks that they use to deliver their beer. Man, you should see those trucks, how they're painted, how fast they are. Let's go to that brewery. Man, you should see the servers. They have the coolest uniforms ever. Man, they must have put so much thought into that. I love that brewery. Hey, we we should meet up at Deschutes because they have incredible tables. No, it completely misunderstands what makes great beer. It's like arriving at Wayne Manor and wanting to hang out with Alfred. I mean, Alfred's a good guy, but his name isn't on the manor. He didn't create the wealth. He didn't build the empire. He is a servant of Bruce Wayne. Well, this is what the Corinthians were doing. And, oh, by the way, this is what Christians do all the time, presently. And this most obviously happens within Christian traditions or denominations where we typecast people, right? Because we label them, we think that we understand them, and therefore we can either embrace them or we can reject them based upon simply a label, simply what church they belong to, what tradition, what fold, what tribe. And what becomes important isn't knowing and serving Jesus and introducing others to his ecstatic love. But what tribe I belong to? But as the church carves itself up into smaller and smaller pieces and factions based upon less important issues, this sort of factionalism destroys the mission of the church. You know, I've never met a non-Christian who said, you know, I'm having a difficult time getting along with my coworkers. And it looks like you Christians really have it figured out how to get along despite your differences. Can we talk about Jesus? 
Never happened. Not one time. While they were dividing over different traditions, but also this happens with regard to actual people, and that's what was happening here in Corinth. Instead of Paul or Apollos or Cephas, it's I'm a follower of this particular writer or author. Anne Lamont, Leslie Newbigin, Tim Keller, Jim Wallace, N.T. Wright, Rowan Williams, Brene Brown, C.S. Lewis. And if you don't know who any of those people are, can we be friends? Because I'd like to make sure you read all the right writers. See what I did there? That's a joke. I've been able to meet in my career a number of highly respected, well-read, well-known authors. And you know what? Most of them are pretty awkward. And if they're pastors, I know that their church is not nearly as effective as the book would lead us to believe. They don't do that intentionally, but they share what they've learned. And then we assume that this is just happening without any resistance in their church, 100%. No, it's not. John Calvin, one of the greatest theologian, writers, most significant people in the history of the world, not a very good dad. Martin Luther, courageous reformer, did not like Jewish people. People that we read, people that we're influenced by, are just men and women like you and me. And they need deodorant because they have BO just like us. They're real people. They annoy people just like you do and just like I do. It's so easy to give them our allegiance because we don't have to sit under their leadership. They don't have as much of a platform to fail us. And if we knew them, they would have the opportunity to fail us. They're just people. Read them. Learn from them. But worship God, not them. Don't divide because of their name and what they are connected with. Benefit from them. But read them in perspective. Remember, they're just servants. Remember, I'm just a servant. And if any of us bear fruit... It's through God alone. Now, quickly, he moves from an agricultural metaphor to an architectural metaphor to talk about the leader's disproportionate opportunity to mess things up and to divide the church. And this is in verses 9 through 15, if you're wanting to follow along. And I want you to listen, especially here if you're a leader, because he says that you can build inappropriately in two ways. Either you can build on a wrong foundation, the wrong foundation, or you can build using perishable material. So two ways that leaders mess it up. One is the wrong foundation, of course, because Paul tells us we have a great hymn about it. The church is one foundation. It's Jesus. Jesus is the church's one foundation. But leaders, once they get a little horsepower, once they get a little traction, once they get a bit of a following, it's so easy to substitute themselves for Jesus's foundation. Either through their brilliance or charisma or more often just simply because they have an agenda And they're talking to people about it. Their agenda supplants the mission of the church. And what you have is a mini church that exists in the context of a larger church. And the people that are in that mini church, they think, well, we have the insight. If everyone would just listen to us, we could figure this mess out. This is what God really wants. We know. 
And it doesn't have to be the pastor. It can be people with gifts, with charm, with a plan. They find it easy to elevate themselves in a church. But it can be a pastor. Did I just say that? It can be a pastor who allows their vision to supplant the centrality of the gospel in the mission of the church and the mission of Jesus. And it may be subtle because as pastors, it's easy for us to talk. We do it for a living. We're taught to influence people, to build leaders. And it's easy also to conflate our personal vision with the mission of the church and to begin communicating in that way. I can't fully explore this, but maybe a couple of clues that we can think about. Does the church's mission feel one-dimensional? You see, the Bible is not one-dimensional. But if you constantly hear this one thing, this is what we do, this is all that we do, this is all we are, then you're probably missing out from the whole counsel of God. And what has happened is that the pastor's vision has inappropriately narrowed down the biblical call to the church to just his or her personal vision. Do you find yourself always at church serving the pastor's vision rather than learning how to serve Jesus in your own calling? In other words, does the church constantly pull you in or does it deploy you outward? Is the pastor touchy or defensive when you have an idea or feedback? There's a sign. There's many more. But it's very easy for a leader to conflate, to supplant the one foundation of the church. And then secondly, very briefly, materials. Even on the foundation of Jesus, we can use human materials. We can be cause-focused rather than Christ-focused. We can be focused upon managerial techniques, insights from the business world. Not a bad thing, but we can become so focused upon doing things rightly that we're not doing the right thing. If people are quite busy, they're scurrying around, but there's no sense of gospel maturity and gospel tenderness. If we entertain rather than challenge, if people are theologically educated to the top of their noggin, but they're not asking, how can I serve and benefit my neighborhood and my neighbor, then we've swung and missed. So what do we do? The end of division, finally. Divisions come when we become infatuated with worldly wisdom, with ourselves, with our own agenda. We are naturally inclined, as I said earlier, to hitch our wagon to the right denomination, the right author, the right speaker, the right guru, the right tradition. Then I'm okay. You see, insecurity again. If I can just find the right person to follow, then I'm okay. But Paul says, you don't understand. You're missing the point. Verse 21, and this is why I read it. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. Or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. 
Friends, there's only one way to know that you're okay. And it's in Christ. That in everything that belongs to God belongs to you in Christ. The world is yours because Christ has overcome it. Don't fear, I have overcome the world. Life is yours because he has overcome death. Do not fear the grave. The present and the future is yours because of the finished, eternal work of Jesus Christ. There is simply no room nor reason left for pride and division and jealousy because you have everything you could possibly ask for already. Stop squabbling. Stop envying. You don't understand what Jesus has done for you. You can be free from looking to your influence, your leadership, to say something that you perceive to be necessary about you. You may be the one who waters, but you're not the one who grows. So get over your influence. Get over all the people that applaud you. But at the same time, the good news is that you don't have to prove yourself anymore. In town doesn't have to prove itself anymore. We don't have to set ourselves apart or differentiate ourselves by minor differences. We don't have to compete. We don't have to outperform. There's nothing left for us to prove. Do you not know, verse 16, that you are God's spirit and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Jesus dwells here by his spirit. You are the temple. You are the dwelling place of God himself. That's who you are. That's where your hope is. Remember who you are. You're a beautiful mess. But Jesus loves you a whole lot. And you have nothing to prove. You're okay. The spirit dwells here. Let's live out of that reality. Let's pray. Father, how quickly we can leave this time and go back into the world trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to differentiate ourselves over and against other people, trying to cobble together resources that serve our own interests, trying to lead people to serve our vision, whether it's here at church or in the home or at work or at school. How easy it is to leave the good news of the gospel and walk around insecure Wondering, am I liked? Am I approved of? Does this person like me? Am I okay? Father, help us to live out of the reality of the gospel, that you indwell us by your spirit, and you are proud to be in our midst. Lord, as we confess our faith, as we come to eat of your table, we pray that you would change us into people and into a church that better resemble the hope of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.